Welcome to another Psych Matters podcast from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Psych Matters is a series of discussions on training and practice issues facing trainees and fellows of the college and other important topics in mental health. This episode is the second in a series of two and explores the effective communication strategies psychiatrists could use with their patients and the impacts of domestic violence on patients with intellectual disability. We acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the First Nations and the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters known as Australia and Māori as Tangata Whenua in Aotearoa. We honour and respect the Elders past and present who weave their wisdom into all realms of life. Welcome to the Psych Matters podcast, everyone. Thanks for joining us. This is Dr. Dan Mermelstein. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatry advanced trainee, just about to finish my training. And I have the pleasure of being joined by Lockie, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, Dan. I'm um, Lachlan Sayer. I am a university student at RMIT, currently studying to be a primary school and special needs teacher, and I have a few stories to share today. Wonderful. Really appreciate joining us today. For those of you who listened to our previous podcast, Got a little bit more intro and information there. Um, if this is the first time you're hearing from us, the only other things to say for me is that I'm also a father of a couple of little ones, two and four, and partner to my lovely wife, and big superhero fan, Lego enthusiast, which we realise we <laughs> share in common, um, and enjoy some meditation. I just ask Marvel or DC. It's got to be Marvel. Yes, it's got to be Marvel. Yeah. I'm not walking out anytime soon. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, yeah. all. Yeah, can, can appreciate all, but certainly Marvel is would be the preference. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, Lockie, and then maybe share your story with us? Yeah, I can do that. So I think on first glance, I am 19. I was born with cerebral palsy and juvenile epilepsy. I was diagnosed at nine months old and I have struggled with physical conditions my entire life because cerebral palsy is such an umbrella term for a lot of different conditions like dystonia and a a whole range of muscle spasticity, things like that. But I think what you're here to talk to me about today is that whilst managing those conditions, I also grew up in a household with domestic violence. Yeah. Can you tell us, you know, as much of your experience as you're happy to? Well, if you go back to the very beginning, and you and I were talking about this the other day, it actually starts less from my perspective, but from my mother's perspective. So she did have an abusive partner in university who she stuck with, and at the age of 29, she would have me. And it never started off very positively. This man did not, who, like... Um, Would you prefer we can call him John? Should we call him John? Yeah, why not? We'll call him John. Let's call him John. So, yeah, John did not attend my diagnosis and John was not very fond of it. And I struggled throughout my entire childhood with his shame of my condition, his anger that he had always lived with. And his belittlement of both my mother, our family's social life, and myself. 
when I was four, my mum gave birth to her second child, my little brother, and he would be go on to be diagnosed with ADHD, ASD and dysgraphia, which I think John spent a long time denying that he had those things because he didn't want either of his children to be disabled, and yet one was more obvious than the other. That resulted in a lot of emotional and mental abuse, but even at times physical abuse, beatings and everything. I was lucky to never experience things like sexual abuse or financial abuse, but without too much detail, these are types of abuse that my mum had to face and I had to watch growing up. Dealing with those things is also in between doctor's appointments, surgeries. CP is a such a common but such a complicated condition with no cure, no cure in development because it's a condition that starts with damage to the brain and it's more about that damage causes the unnatural development of other areas. So obviously, I'm not sure if you can actually see us. I don't think the cameras are on. But as you can see, my hand struggles and everything like that, as, as well as my leg and the physical development of my muscles on everything on my left side. So it's called a left side hemiplegia, what I have. And everything on my left side developed wrong. And that's not something I've ever been ashamed of. In fact, that's something I've been quite against all odds with John and everything. That's something I'm quite proud of. I have achieved a lot in my life. I mean, the fact that I was even considered to come on here is an example of that. And so it's nothing to be ashamed of and it's something I'm very proud of. But John, most of all, there are people that are in my life who have tried to make me feel bad about those conditions and everything else. Well, I think I, I just want to start off by saying, you know, I'm sorry you had all of those experiences, you know, because I don't think anyone should have to deal with any of that. And I do really appreciate how brave you're being and the courage that it takes to kind of talk about them openly. It took a long time to be able to talk about it with a therapist, with my mother, never mind podcast with lots of people listening. Yeah, it, it is courageous and it's, it is a testament, I think, to your character that you should be really proud of yourself, to the young man you've become, regardless of those kinds of experiences. I guess I'm wondering, what have some of your experiences been in interfacing with different health professionals, different clinicians along the way, thinking about the fact that almost in secret, there was all this other stuff going on while you were engaging with these services and, you know, how did it all come to light? How did it all change? There's a level of acceptance and denial. I think that when it was happening, and it was happening up until 2016, 2016 is when it hit its peak and the most horrible things happened to my family, and then I stopped seeing John, and then three, four months later... I was forced by a court order to see John and it all picked up again at its worst again. And then in January 2018, I, at the age of 14, because that's legal age to do it, made the call and stopped seeing him and I've lived peacefully ever since. But it wasn't till I stamped my foot 
in 2018 or Jan 2018 that I actually accepted how long this was going on for. So I could easily tell you that my life, mid-2017, I could easily tell you that the past year had been horrible, John was horrible, and all these bad things had happened. But it took me a while to be able to see, and I definitely couldn't see these things in the moment, about how much impact it was having on me at the time and how much impact or damage it's caused now. Recently, I told you I have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder, as many of you listening would know, is trauma-based. And it's the, well, the learning of negative responses to different stresses. And so basically the way I've understood it is that growing up in a household where I was being abused and thought of it as regular parental discipline that all my friends were receiving was just normal. But I find out when I look back with a more developed brain, with a better understanding of the world, with a much happier mum since she had divorced from John... I felt real, like I I could look at it with an open mind and a fresh perspective. And that's when I accepted that this was what had had been happening. But to me, when it was happening, it was life. Yeah, it was a kind of horrible normal, but there was no reference point. There was no one else to kind of compare it to necessarily. There was nowhere to draw the line because everyone in my household was in one way or another a part of it. So they had no objective place to draw the line. Was there a particular person or people that helped you on that journey of like coming to understand it differently and a counsellor or therapist or? No. Originally, I'll say nothing professional. And for a long time, it was nothing at all. John kept my family quite isolated, monitored everywhere we went, monitored everything we did, was very controlling. I saw my family my external family, but I saw my school friends at school and that was it. We had no family friends. We had no communication with the outside world. And then when that ended, it took a long time for us to actually make family friends and to make connections. But even when I started to make them, I wasn't receiving any professional help. My mother had now turned to smoking and turned to negative habits and you know, almost in a midlife crisis kind of way, was going out and trying to live the life that John kept her from having. And I don't blame her for that, and it's taken us a long time to recover from those things, and it's something she almost feels guilty about, but I tell her not to. It was all a part of her response, but there was still me and my brother, and before my stepdad came along, who I will call dad because he is my dad. I've actually just recently changed my middle name and last name to his name. But until he came along, it was just someone had to step up. And it's not like there needed to be a man of the house. It was one of the three of us living in that house had to take some initiative. And at the age of, well, 11 really is when it started, I I took that initiative. And... Then when someone came and, a.k.a. my dad, someone came to try and take that off me to let me be a kid again, I never went back to being a kid. But because I took this role of caring for my my brother and my mum and doing all I could to help and being exposed and being forced to go to court for family 
sessions and uh, reviews and everything, I, I never stopped to care for myself. And so I never got professional support. I never got personal friends that I talked to about it. And for a while there, once that responsibility was taken away from me, I, I went down a dark path. Yeah. I, it's I, like it all finally hit you in some way. Yeah, yeah. And at home I was still trying to have that control. And I'll admit to this day I struggle with not having that control sometimes because it's, it feels natural to be in control of the room. But then there's a level of insecurity of will I become John? With too much control of a room, am I going to become him? And that's another thing that I battle with every day, particularly when I get mad. Where is the line? You can yell at someone when you're angry at them, but it is yelling to the point where they're spit flying or to the point where you're punching walls or punching a person. These are bad things, but the way I was raised was makes it really hard to accept they're not normal. And when there's that much anger that we're exposed to and we're so little, it does leave this kind of big mark in terms of what happens when I feel angry. It's partly because of my borderline personality disorder, but like in moments, certain moments, I'll get very angry and I'll start yelling and I'll feel nothing but guilt for the next three days. And that's because in the moment I went into habit, I went into default, I went into kind of like that instinctual fight-flight settings which are developed at such a young age and... It was the wrong place for a child to be developing yeah. such, such responses. I wonder, Lockie, what has helped you go from that dark place to now being able to sit here and talk about it? What have been the helpful things that professionals and, and others have done for you? Well, I think I say this to a few people, but because you like superheroes, you'll probably get what I'm actually referencing. But when you have a responsibility or you have something that other people don't have, whether that be experience or a voice or, in my case, I have a disability but I am still verbal, you have a responsibility to help other people. That's your... Great power comes great responsibility. But, yeah, no, it's, it's like because I have this experience, mm, yeah, I want to yeah, talk yeah. about it. Number one, to get it off my chest to anyone that will listen at this point, which is unhealthy at times, but also so I can be of service to people who are either going through it or haven't got the tools to talk about it. I just think that's why I'm okay to talk about it because I'm not talking about it for me. I'm talking about it for people I can help. And that links back to taking on a level of responsibility for my family rather than caring for myself or being cared for. Sure, sure. And look, hopefully this podcast does help psychiatrists, psychiatry trainees, maybe even some who've had their own domestic violence experiences we don't know. It can happen in a lot of different families regardless of, of background and whatever different profession they're in. Hopefully it helps people to kind of feel heard and feel represented and also for us to be thinking about this with a whole range of different people that we work with, whether they're children or adolescents or adults, where some people may find it really hard to talk about these things. They may still be right in the midst of it, right? And there is that shame and control and fear. 
And maybe this is about encouraging clinicians, you know, to be curious about this side of the equation for people, especially if they are, let's say, presenting like with borderline personality disorder, like you said, sometimes people are presenting with a lot of anger. Can we be curious about what's underneath that? Where that anger is coming from. Yeah. And where is that? What's that complex trauma that people might have experienced that can underpin all of that or or is currently affecting them? Yeah. And... I think um, it's such a common thing, but it's such an unspoken thing that these things are happening to like so many people, yeah. and it's an experience that I would not wish on my worst enemy. But I think that, and I cannot make anyone do this if they're not comfortable to do it. But the the thing I am most proud of is one day stamping my foot and saying I'm not coming. When John came to pick me up and was for our our fortnightly weekend. And I wasn't telling anyone until recently about what happened on those weekends, but I said no. And no one dared tested me and no one dared to make me go. And I found a song that quite thoroughly explained my experience without me having to look for the words. And I texted him that song and I haven't spoken to him since. Wow. And that was eight odd years ago. Eight odd years ago. Yeah. So what would you say to some of the maybe psychiatrists, trainees, clinicians who are working with people who are having all sorts of different difficulties about how they can approach this conversation of that domestic and family violence that might be happening well, like I said, I've been at many stages in this discussion in my life. Like, you know, I was in a stage where I was just the punching bag and then I was in a stage of quite built-up anger and silly choices. And then I was in the stage of, and we haven't got into this one, but I, I met a girl and we fell into this long-term relationship. And, and don't get me wrong, it was great. But there was so much comfortability in the fact that I was secure, and so there was a lot of things that were coming out that I hadn't addressed, and so I was in a relationship that I was probably not very healthy in, and vice versa, but I was not very healthy in, you know? That was me just trying to feel secure and safe, and I found that I fall into that pattern with pretty much one person at a time. Like, I I can safely say at the moment it's my best friend, who knows me and knows my story, but it's in a stage of time, it changes. Like I had a second serious girlfriend and we we lasted a while and it was really nice and everything, but towards the end, those sort of traits started to come out again because I felt too safe and too comfortable that I started releasing those habits of things that aren't healthy. And I think for every psychiatrist, it's important to remember that it's all a chain reaction. So I dealt with that. I dealt with a disability whilst being abused and I I dealt with all these different things. And now when I go into therapy, I spend my days complaining about what my past week has been about (laughs) and my psychologist tries to find links back to my childhood, which we avoid talking about, but then I go to a psychiatrist and I'm forced to talk about those things. And... I'm looked at like there's 
clearly events here that have caused things rather than, well, maybe I'm still suffering from it. Maybe I'm still in it and I'm not telling you. And I'm not, thank God, but it's about just you don't know. You may know the clinical conditions that trauma can cause and you may have your own experience with trauma, but everyone is very different. Personalities change with every human being like a fingerprint and it's your job to understand where things might be coming from for this particular person. We mentioned it in the previous podcast, but I didn't feel very understood by... And I also felt interrogated. I um, went through a stage of my life where I was quite suicidal because of everything. And I resulted in a couple of suicide attempts. And then I tell the psychiatrist about that yesterday, and it's like, oh, well, were they just... Were they attempts or were they just threats? So that was the hardest time in my life. I really struggled. Don't talk about it like, well, it's in the past, so what can we do about the present? Talk about it like it is the trigger point that caused this train reaction that led me to where I am and who I am today. Yeah, and it sounds like that way of asking about it, is it a threat, was it just a threat? It's almost like dismissing the seriousness of the underlying suffering and thought process that must have been happening at that time. It's bad, and I would never wish anyone, but there is something so empowering about hitting the cliff and then turning around and going back and recovering. It was so dark but during that time, but the steps I took to go back in the other direction are such important building blocks for who I am today. But you need to appreciate, I think, as a psychiatrist, every single step and how small or large each brick builds the wall. I hope that you're enjoying this podcast. If you have a topic suggestion or would like to participate in a future episode of Psych Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by email at psychmatters.feedback at ranzcp.org. Yeah, and I think there's something that really stood out to me when you spoke about that idea of sometimes there are all these heavy things that have happened and difficult things that have happened and that's not necessarily what you want to be talking about at a particular time, let's say. And so part of being trauma-informed in our work is sort of actually meeting people where they're at and like thinking about what is that little brick right now for us to be working on rather than diving into... I think it's obviously like I'm being quite open with you here, but... At the same time, I'm barely touching the iceberg, you know? And that is because, like, it is a very personal thing, it's a very personal experience, and we're on a podcast. But if you were my actual psychiatrist, I think right now I would... And this, don't, don't let it get to your ego. But I think this would be, like, I would feel far more comfortable to tell you about the experiences that have shaped me because I feel as though I'll be understood and you'll at least do your best to appreciate how these have built me as a human. I appreciate you saying that, Lockie, and I hope that that's helpful for us to to reflect on what that experience is about, you know, that there's something about us being able to just... Maybe it's even the fact that, like, we're not talking in any sort of a clinical context, right? That makes it so much more easeful and, and comfortable and also... There are ways we can try and make that how it feels for, for each young person or each person walking through the door, right? 
Yeah, well, I, I think that's an interesting comment to make because you're right. I waited eight, six months for an availability because of how booked out psychiatrists are at the moment and how little there are in Melbourne. And so that was eight to six months of me building up tension, building up expectations. I still, two days prior, I realised I had no clue what I was getting myself into. I was like, oh, what am I going to talk about? Even though I had months to prepare. But that anxiety builds up, especially when you know you're going somewhere to talk about your hardest memories and experiences. And then... You get there and it's like, I'm not a particularly shy person and I don't get very anxious about public speaking, but there was a level of nerves before coming to record this. But I've sat down and I've gotten quite comfortable and just flown with the conversation. And that's how, even though it's a much more tense position to go to a psychiatry appointment, your psychiatrists all around the world need to understand that you need to let the conversation flow and you need to make it a comfortable environment where you can get the best out of your patient. And your patient might not even be telling you that their John was doing the things he was doing. I think I don't want to obviously play the victim too much. I feel I hate it when I do that. But I had the mixture of a disability and being abused, but also being abused because of my parents' shame for that disability and so there are so many aspects there that as a psychiatrist in an hour you need to figure out and appreciate and I understand that can be very tough but I could be wrong but as someone who's quite social I mean it's person to person patient to patient but it's not as complicated as it might seem if like you and I discuss with the rectal exam you know you're going in there for an uncomfortable appointment but you go in there with an expectation that this is the appointment, get it done. But if you go into that appointment, relax, it's going to work out far better, let's be honest. <laughs> well, especially if the doctor can help you feel a bit more relaxed and safe yeah. and comfortable, yeah. 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 Well, I think that's a really, really interesting and important thing that, again, we spoke about this in the last podcast, that sometimes for us as psychiatrists, as mental health clinicians, we're sort of going from day to day to day, session to session to session, kind of very task orientated, sometimes a bit clinical in our thinking. And we forget just like the person's journey, like to just, just to get to that door is a big deal, to sit down is a big deal. And yeah, I have a question. My mum, my dad and John are all lawyers. All three of them are lawyers. Okay. <laughs> so I've seen how lawyers work in six-minute intervals. A psychiatrist, roughly the same, because when you called me the other day and we discussed the podcast, you had to run because you had a review five minutes later. Is it as tight of a schedule? It's Well, yeah, it's a good question. So I think there are definitely... And there are so many good psychiatrists out there who really are very thoughtful and have tried to set up their practices in a way that probably keeps things safe and connected and comfortable. So like, I want to acknowledge how that might work really well sometimes. But I do think that what you were speaking to before of just the sheer demand on psychiatry at the moment means that many psychiatrists, particularly post-COVID, I think there are many psychiatrists, whether it's us in the public system, others in the private system, who probably are extremely busy. You know, I don't think it's as bad as six-minute intervals, but it might be back to back to back and switching 
from maybe I'm seeing a mum with her baby and I'm doing some work on her experience of delivery and then in the next hour I'm on the ground with a three-year-old sort of talking about playing with them and, and engaging with the mum and dad and then in the next hour I'm in a child protection and NDIS care team meeting and so we are often trying to shift gears and I do wonder if sometimes that means that just like stopping and breathing and regulating ourselves such that we can then be present and welcoming to the next person without bringing the flow of each session. Yeah, you are only human. Every, everyone is only a human and pressure builds up. And for all I know, the psychiatrist I saw yesterday was under a lot of pressure and maybe something was going on at home or something like that. And I hate to be like negative and discredit anything that any psychiatrist is going through. But you have some of the most sensitive human beings visiting you in a psychiatry appointment. Like psychology, whilst not used enough, is far more common with your universal amount of people versus psychiatrists who are receiving sometimes far darker individuals who need help. Yeah, yeah. And that complexity that oftentimes, as you said, like by the time somebody arrives at a psychiatrist, often there are these multiple layers of complexity that are being asked to think about, you know, whether it is intellectual disability or neurodiversity or trauma or mental illness. Yeah, so... And then even though you are human, unfortunately, when you're dealing with people that severe or that challenged, or that helpless, your personal stuff. Like, I I feel bad about saying it because I wouldn't say it to anyone else other than a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Those things need to be put aside. Yeah, and what does, like, self-care look like for psychiatrists so that because... Oh, it would be so important, yeah. It's it's such a big part of it is to show up, but I think we want to keep focusing on the lived experience side of the equation in terms of the kinds of things that we can, if we can arrive as our best selves, ideally, what is those ways in which we can be most helpful to people who are experiencing these complex issues? Yeah, well, I came at a very late stage in my experience. I mean, I was always abused, but everything hit the fan when I was 11, and now I'm 19. So I've just now seen a psychiatrist, and I've been discussing with my psychologist doing schema work to look at these things, but, you know, my mum's 47 and she's only started scheme work in the past two years. Everyone is coming into this at a different stage. I think that as a psychiatrist, you need to be knowledgeable on every stage. Like, how long has it been since I saw John and how much self-improvement have I made for myself? And... A lot. Like, I, I, I'll toot my own horn here, a lot. Which means whilst I did that alone and whilst I probably skipped some crucial steps that would have really been beneficial, this is the here and now me and the, the psychiatrist I met with needs to deal with the here and now me but also completely appreciate the past and the self-improvement, again, positive or negative, that I've made to myself since then. Yeah, that's such a crucial idea. What does it mean to meet someone where they're at 
in their journey. And we talked about this idea of disability or neurodiversity, intellectual disability, trauma. This is just a label that sits on top of a huge picture in terms of what's actually happened for a person, where are they up to in that process, how can I be most helpful right now? I wonder, are there any thoughts you have about what that kind of looks like, how that might be explored, so that for me, as a psychiatrist, I can know this is kind of how comfortable someone is talking about it or this is how they're going with the process. Even though you only have an hour, and so it can be tricky, I think that walking into any review or interview the first five minutes needs to be water testing, like testing the waters, see how, like you get an analysis of the person as an individual before you go into their, their deeper stuff. Like you ask them what their interests are. You ask them, are you happy you're finally getting an appointment? How do you feel about this session? And you get an understanding and you hope they're being honest, but as a psychiatrist, you can kind of tell if they're not. And so you get an understanding. It's like, I'm sorry that the waiting list has been so long. We're really in a whole thing right now with psychiatry. How long have you been waiting? Oh, I've been waiting six months. Oh, so you must be pretty happy to be here. How are you feeling about this appointment? Oh, um, I'll be honest with you, I'm a little bit nervous. Um, This is quite a stressful thing, but I want what's best for me. And not only is that welcoming the patient into your space it's also for you getting an understanding of what is acceptable what this person is like you can immediately tell no matter without anything else if anything you can tell that this person is feeling shy or chatty based on those sorts of questions in the first five minutes Now, I get, yes, we're restricted by limited time in a session, but, yeah, it's just about asking questions that might have nothing to do with the things you're talking about, but everything to do with the session or comfortability level, like making some jokes. Oh, I hope I'm not too scary. (laughs) Like, you're not. You're, you're a dad, you're a child psychiatrist. That's what you get. But by making that joke, I'm, I mean, I know based on my personality, I would shoot back and go, yeah, you're terrifying <laughs> or something like that. And that automatically tells you that I'm a bit of a jokester yeah. or maybe that if I seem stressed by making jokes, maybe I'm really forcing myself out of a bubble that I don't feel comfortable being outside of. There's so many things to consider, especially with neurodiverse people and domestic violence victims, because you have no idea what they have been through and you have no idea where you can go in this session. So you need to know that before you even ask, so what was your childhood like? What is your dad like? You ask questions like, so how old are you? Oh, what are you studying? Oh, things like that at the start. But you don't go, okay, so... Did you have a particularly positive childhood experience? Because if you start with that, you're automatically filling the room with these tense thoughts, these tense memories, which need to be addressed, don't get me wrong. 
but that's the only thing in the room. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that building of a rapport, that building of a yeah. connection at the start, even if it does take five or ten minutes, just to be able to meet as two different people in a pretty strange situation in a way, it's clear to me what you're kind of saying is that that allows for the rest of the conversation for those other 30 minutes to be a lot more honest and maybe a lot more rich. Whereas if we jump straight into stuff and somebody has to like lay clothes off, they're, they're not as open as you might be. I wonder if your passion with Lego and superheroes as a child psychiatrist ever comes advantage. <laughs> Absolutely. Like the other day I was talking to a, a young trans boy and his mum and they had this like wonderful Guardians of the Galaxy 2 poster on the telehealth screen. And so we just spent the first few minutes just talking about Guardians of the Galaxy and our favourite characters and who he identified with and all the rest of it. And, and it was really nice actually because one of my colleagues who was in that review with me and followed up with the mum got some really positive feedback about their experience of me and his experience of me and I think... It was some of that simple stuff of just like building a connection that was not to do with the hard and that things. Rapport, yeah, exactly. Um, I know we we don't have long left, but you also had a few questions. I remember when we were discussing part of the yeah, thing yeah. I wonder if experience. you could speak to us a little bit about what you observed of that, and 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 the other thing, I'd, if you have time to tell us a little bit about any interaction with like family violence services, child protective services. I'm curious about the systemic aspect of all of this. I'll clearly too. start by saying she's a family lawyer. So she deals with victims of domestic violence on the daily and helps domestic violence victims, and so she sees it every day. So when it happened to her, it came in no benefit, (laughs) honestly. She was like, oh, well, there's all these cons to these processes that I have to follow, so I'm not going to follow them. And so she received no support. But if we go all the way back to like my diagnosis, for example, that story I've heard time and time again, and it's, it's a horrible story. She went to the Royal Children's Hospital. I had had my second brain scan because they had actually missed the cerebral palsy on the first one, and they found it on the second one. And they mentioned to her, uh, we don't want to jump to conclusions, but it looks like Herb's palsy. It's far more severe and far more dangerous than cerebral palsy. Not to mention Herb's palsy is develops over time. Degenerative, that's the word. Yeah, so uh, Herb's is degenerative cerebral palsy practically. And that was the first thing they shot at her and she had never heard of that in her life. Anyways, they take her into the appointment and they sit her down and they're talking to her. Mind you, John's nowhere to be seen. And they tell her that her son has cerebral palsy. That's definitely cerebral palsy. To them, they're like... They said to her, they're like, that's definitely cerebral palsy. That's great. Like, it's much better than herbs. But mum's like, isn't, like, cerebral palsy, like, Stephen Hawking-level wheelchair? And she emphatically left the session, went to the cafeteria, and cried. And cried and cried and cried. Again, still no John. She texted him. She's like, our son has cerebral palsy. And he's like, I don't even know what his reaction was. In fact, like don't want to know because <laughs> I think it would just make me feel worse about myself. But my mum was just in tears and she was approached by a shout out to a, an OT called Sue Greaves, who was incredible. And Sue Greaves, she just sat my mum down and told her it was going to be okay and explained everything to her. And that was the only support my mum ever got. From that moment forward, she was a single mum 
who still had a husband living with her. She was an abuse victim. She was a carer. And then four years later, her neurodivergent son is born and that just throws a whole nother set of issues in the mix. She is the strongest woman I know. She's the most headstrong woman. She has many flaws <laughs> and she is all the more powerful because of it. But back then she wasn't. At work she was, but at home she was a victim with no support systems. Now, I think it's not necessarily a psychiatrist problem to bring single mums like that into a session, but there needs to be a push because it's awful. It's like, don't get me wrong, it's awful with the single mum story. It's, it's terrible. There's so many out there. Or single parent, I should say, not just single mums. And then there's so many women who are being abused. And then there's so many single mums with partners or dads with partners who are also being abused. Like, this is happening all the time. But there are so many other little factors in there, like maybe their children are different. Whether that be trans, whether that be disabled, whether that be struggling with anger. It's not just about what they are copying, it's about what other factors in their life are making things really tough. Yeah, and again, it's probably a conversation for another podcast about like, what are those systemic factors, you know, the family violence service, child protection services, schools, healthcare, like, because the thing that comes to mind is how does someone like your mum and then someone like you and your brother kind of go through all those experiences over so many years? It's under the radar and it's not like either possible or accessible or okay to find more help or or even once the family court's involved, how does it happen that you kind of get sent back in that situation? You know, that kind of stuff confuses me. I love my mother to bits, but if I will say one thing, she didn't think she needed any of that stuff because she sees different domestic violence victims in her work all the time. And she's like, oh, I'm, the, I'm not as bad as them. I'm not being raped. Like, you're not, but that doesn't make you any less a victim. And, you know, it is avoidance strategies to avoid admitting you're the victim, which so many women, men, children need to deal with, avoiding the acceptance that they are the victim. And it's taken me a long time to accept that I was a victim. But, you know, my mum was like, I see this in work all the time. I don't need these things. And she struggled with accepting my borderline personality disorder for that exact reason. She's seen a degree of it in her work. And I'm not dissing her or anything. Like she, she's incredible. Sure. Your mum has to have had so much strength to deal with everything she's had to deal with and help bring you and your brother up. And I think it sounds to me and speaks to me of this idea of like there can be stigma and shame that's from the other and there can also be this internalised stigma and shame. We would deny certain thing because it means... I can't speak for all my mum's trauma. I can definitely speak for the parts I was there for in the past 19 years. But I am still to this day not allowed to ask about her childhood. But I know it was not positive. These things also contribute. There's an intergenerational element to it. Well, my pop's doing a lot better now, but homicide detective, PTSD, seen some horrible things, been not the best dad, and so it's definitely run through the family. But my mum definitely struggles 
was so many different things. And she's powerful and no one's disputing that. But imagine the good that could have been done if she felt comfortable to come to these support networks. In the past two years, she's been doing therapy and it's made a world of difference. When the plane, we talked about that in the other podcast, but when the plane incident happened a few weeks ago, first thing she did was call her psychologist, her therapist, and because she knows she has that now. But there are so many people out there who have still not admitted to themselves that they have those options. And it's about creating, like, obviously, I've had a negative experience with a psychiatrist. I have friends that have had negative experience with a psychiatry. That builds a reputation. And then it gets back to people like my mum who then don't want to come. Right. And maybe that's such an important note for us to kind of end on is the idea that by the time someone does build up the courage to come and talk to a professional, it's such an important thing to hold lightly and to hold with respect because if they have a negative experience of that, they may not seek help again at all or if, or not for years and who knows how much more damage can be done in that time. If I say, like, this is a one-liner and it sounds really cheesy, but if you help someone, you help everyone. And I think that when you help my mum, she goes and tells her friends who are also victims and then they come. Yeah, such an important thing for us to remember. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here to tell my story because I want to give off my positive and negative experience to you guys because by helping my story get out there, I'm helping others. Yeah, hopefully others can find help. I I hope this makes a difference. I hope so too, and I hope that people can can go and seek out the help that that they might need, and we might include some resources around that, you know, particularly if this has had an impact on you listening in, you know, please reach out. And for those who are doing the helping, hopefully this is going to help guide that a little bit. And Right now I'm going to go to the gym and use the outlet I have there <laughs> to, to burn off some stress. <laughs> it's, it's been, yeah, it's, it's been Thank great you so talking much. to you, Lucky. Really appreciate your openness and courage. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for that. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Psych Matters. Feel free to share it with others and keep an eye out for future episodes. Psych Matters is produced by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. 